So question, how strong and how vital is your prayer life? How often do you make time to pray? How often do you make and take time to address or enter into the presence of the Lord of heaven and earth by prayer? See, Jesus clearly assumed, based on our text this morning, that true believers, those who truly love and serve and follow Jesus Christ, will pray. You see, when anyone truly turns to Christ in faith repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ for salvation, for the salvation of our soul, Scripture tells us that God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. And God's Spirit in us changes us from the inside out. The Spirit replaces the old sinful patterns, the old sinful passions with a new hope, with a new direction, with a new primary focus, a new primary aim, and that is living for Christ as his obedient disciple. This means that new spiritual duties, new spiritual practices take the place of our old sinful patterns. And in Matthew 6, 1 to 18, Jesus refers to three, three new norms, three assumed duties that he expects his disciples to practice with some degree of regularity. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first one in chapter 6, verse 2. Look at it again. Jesus taught, when you give to the needy. You see that? When in this context is a word of expectation, a word that clearly reveals to us that Jesus assumes that his people will give. The disciple of Jesus Christ will be a person of charity, will be a person of generosity, will be one who contributes to the needs of the saints. And for the sake of clarity, because this particular text is one that people like to try and wiggle out of, the, the generosity or the giving that is referred to here concerns money. Like money. While we give generously with our time and we give generously of all different things, Jesus is referring to money. Christians are generous with their money. The Puritan pastor Matthew Henry rightly terms this duty as the honoring of God with our estates. Christians will honor God with their stuff, with what they've been given by God. The second assumed duty, which we'll pick up today, or spiritual practice that is expected by Jesus Christ from all who truly follow him, is that of prayer. So you see it again, right? Jesus makes it clear in chapter 6, verse 5. Look at it again. When you pray. Not if, but when you pray. See, Jesus teaches us that prayer is key to the Christian life. And for anyone... For anyone to say, you know what, I love God, but to, inv- to avoid engaging themselves in regular prayer is foolishness and self-deception. So let me ask you again, do you take the time to pray? Prayer is vital to your relationship with the Lord. Prayer is indispensable to our growth up into His image. Prayer is crucial to revealing our absolute dependence on Him. Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. And Matthew Henry, once again, the great Puritan pastor, termed this duty as the honoring of God with our souls. The honoring of God with our souls. And the third assumed duty or norm that is expected uh, of Christ when his disi- from his disciples is that of fasting. We're going to cover that when in, in, probably in the new year. But notice again how Jesus states it in chapter 6, verse 16. Do you see it? When you fast. Not if, when. When. And Lord willing, we will expra- explain the practice, the purpose, and the meaning of fasting more fully when we pick up on this in the future. Matthew Henry, once again, terms this spiritual duty or this expectation as the honoring of God with our bodies. Now, hopefully, you have uh, noticed the stress that Pastor Matthew Henry placed on the honor of God. Did you see that? 
All of these we practice for the honor of God. The honor of God, the exaltation of God, the glory of God ought to be the fundamental reason for everything that we do as Christians. And this lines up quite, quite nicely with what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. If you look at it again, he said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you see, it is the honor, the exaltation, the praise, the glory of God that inspires the obedient lives of his people. We strive to honor God with our estates and our finances and our money and our material possessions with the goal of His glory being noted and praised by everyone around us. We strive to honor God with our souls as we pray and we strive to honor and glorify God with our bodies as we fast. The aim of everything we do, the aim of every righteous practice, the aim of every instance of obedience to the Lord is the same that he might be honored and he might be praised. But there is a problem. And Jesus, in bringing up these three spiritual duties, sought to deal with the problem. What is the problem, you ask? Well, that's a good question. The problem is we are consistently tempted not to perform spiritual duties for the glory and honor and exaltation of God, but to perform spiritual duties for the glory and praise of ourselves. To perform our spiritual duties in order to be seen by others, to be applauded by others, to be noticed by others. Rather than honoring God with our souls and our estates and our bodies, we try to take what rightfully belongs to God and God alone and have it applied to us. And the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of this day, along with the scribes, who were the biblical scholars of the day, had surrendered themselves almost entirely to this most grievous and wicked temptation. When they gave of their money, it wasn't for the honor of God. But as chapter 6, verse 2 reveals, look at it again, they gave that they may be praised by others. Do you see that? They didn't give so that God would be honored. They gave so that they would be praised. And this is a humongous, gigantic deal. Because God is exceedingly jealous over his glory. Not in the sense of human envy that another might receive it, but in the sense that there are no others that deserve it. Nobody else deserves the exaltation and the glory and the honor of God aside from the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. None warrant his glory, and so he guards it vigilantly. And so Jesus began this section, if you look back at chapter 6, verse 1, with a stern and serious warning. You see that in verse 1? Beware. You see that? Beware. Be on guard. Be alert. Be cautious of the dangerous weakness that is common to each and every one of us. And what is this weakness that we are to be on guard against or alert to? Look at the next bit of chapter 6, verse 1. Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now let's just clarify a little bit. The issue at hand isn't, is not the practice of righteousness in and of itself. We are all called to practice righteousness and to live righteously. The Apostle John made this fact abundantly clear in 1 John 2.29 when he said this, If you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The issue isn't even the practice of righteousness in the sight of other people, right? Jesus clarified this in Matthew 5.16, like we just read. Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, again, all who truly love Christ, all who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, will strive to live righteous, obedient lives. In all circumstances, whether they are in private or whether they are in public, living righteously, being a righteous person, cannot be hidden. 
and a righteous life will be noticed. The issue at hand is the reason for one's practice of righteous deeds. What is the reason behind doing what you do? Everything that we do is for someone's glory. The question is, whose? Whose glory are you seeking? Are you, in obedience to Christ, living a righteous life so that when people look at you and they see you living in obedience, they give glory to your Father who is in heaven? Or are you, like the scribes and the Pharisees, practicing virtuous behavior for the sake of your own praise, for the sake of your own adoration, for the sake of your own applause? The intentions with which we practice our righteous duties is of primary importance, and that's the focus of Christ in this section. It's one thing to live to and for the glory of God. It is one thing to live an obedient and righteous life so that God is honored by others in all that you say and do. It's another to shift or transfer the glory that belongs to God alone so that it is, it, it is given to us. And again, this forms the primary purpose for Jesus' words in these verses. Beware, beware of the pharisaical, most common tendency to perform our deeds of righteousness not for the glory of God, not that people might see and praise God, but instead that people would notice you, that people would adore you, that people would congratulate you or me or applaud you or me that people would set their affection and their attention on us. And hear me clearly. Note this very clearly. This is one of, if not the most wicked of sins. The redirecting of glory and praise in any direction other than God himself. Or, to put it negatively, not deflecting God, the glory that rightfully belongs to God alone, from ourselves to the Lord. This is idolatry. This is glory theft. Not that anyone can actually subtract from God or steal his glory, but we can commit the heinous sin of ascribing to ourselves or to some other human being that which rightfully belongs to God alone. And this is an act that each and every one of us ought to beware of committing. Glory, honor, and praise for the Christian flow in one direction and one direction only. In the direction of the only one worthy of being glorified, God himself. And this proper aim of praise is evident in Scripture from page one all the way to the last page. A couple of examples just from the Psalms we see in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Or Psalm 115, verse 1. doesn't get much clearer than this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Not much clearer than that, right? Not to us, not to us, but to you give glory. As we learned in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, the glory and the honor of God is the goal and the purpose for our giving. And now as we come to chapter 6, verse 5, we learn that the same is true in prayer. The goal of our prayer life is not to bring glory or accolades or applause or respect to our own selves, but to honor and to exalt the God upon whom we depend for all things. And so Jesus continues his teaching on God's glory being our ambition in spiritual duties, saying in chapter 6, verse 5, and when you pray. Again, just a reminder, not if, but when. It is the expectation of Christ that all who call on his name for salvation will pray. So then that leads to the question, what is prayer exactly? Simply put, prayer is addressing God. 
Prayer is addressing God. It is speaking to our Father who is in heaven. And this is not something that we ought to enter into lightly. The Lord must not be addressed as though he were one like us because he is not. The Lord ought not to be addressed like he is some casual acquaintance because he is not. Far from it. Prayer is talking to God. 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 And so Jesus spends some time here helping the crowds, helping the disciples, helping us learn the proper attitude to prayer along with the proper content of prayer, along with the proper attitude of prayer. This morning we're going to look at the attitude and when we pick up later in uh, a couple weeks we will look at the content. So when we pray, we approach the Lord into, uh, in order to address him. And when we do so, chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus continues, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Do you see that? You must not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrites in this context were pretenders. Those who pretend to be concerned with piety or holiness. Those who pretend to be devout in their service to God. Those who are really good at this, but not actually good with living it out. I don't know if there, are any, there is any group more responsible for the bad name of Christ and his people than those who are devout with their lips and then live a life that completely betrays what they say. We must not be like the hypocrites. We must be those, not be those who show, use the show of holiness as a means for obtaining to ourselves or for ourselves the praises of others. You see, pretenders are those who will make sure that everything they do, all of their good deeds, all of their righteousnesses are done so that other people see, so that other people witness them. Because they want some of that applause. In this context, we're talking about the Pharisees. And he gives us a couple of examples that the hypocrites and pretenders uh, engaged in. Look at what he says next. The hypocrites and pretenders, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. You see that in there in verse 5? See, at this time, audible prayer was the norm. The idea of reading silently and praying silently, that's rather a new phenomenon. In these days, you read out loud, you prayed out loud. Everything was done out loud. But it, again, it's not the praying out loud with an earshot of others that's the problem. But the practice, uh, the pharisaical practice of finding the prime spot in the synagogue. That spot where if you position yourself just right, everyone will see you because it's the most visible spot in the room. So that everyone would both see and here, these Pharisees spout their eloquent and verbose prayers. The hypocrites and pretenders didn't just stand in the synagogues, but they also loved to stand and pray at the street corners. You see that in verse 5? They loved to stand and pray at the street corners. You see, they would find themselves the busiest intersection on the way to synagogue. You would have been hard-pressed to find a Pharisee praying in one of the back alleyways where there was not a lot of foot traffic. They would have, you would have been hard-pressed to find a Pharisee in one of the less-traveled streets. They just always happened to be in the busiest places at the busiest times, praying loudly, praying at the top of their lungs for everyone who is passing by to hear. The hypocrites made it look like they were so devout, they were so holy, they made it look like, I can't even make it to the temple without, have, without pouring forth prayer. Again, it's not the prayers themselves that are the problem. It's not even where one prays that's the major problem, but the reason or the purpose for their prayers. The reason for their praying where and when that they, they do. You see, in verse 5, it gives us the reason. That they may be seen by others. You see that? that they may be seen by others. See, the Pharisees 
And the hypocritical religious leaders prayed in order to be seen by others because they valued the praise of men more than their approach to the Lord himself. They prized the admiration of people more than their relationship with the God of heaven and earth. They cherished their reputation with fellow humans more than the honor of the God that they claimed to serve. And to this attitude, Jesus declares, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What reward is that? Exactly what they wanted. The cheap reward of human applause. You see, I... When you read through scripture, you will note that one of the most devastating judgments that God can give to a human being is when he gives us what we want. You ever notice that? We don't know much of the time what we need. We know what we want. Our flesh is always wanting something. And when the Lord gives us up to what we want, that is a rather devastating judgment. And the clearest example of this is found in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that one of the many ways the wrath of God is dispensed on earth is by giving people up to their own desires. Romans 1.18, for example, tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Amen. And why do the ungodly suppress the truth? A truth that is readily available and obvious to everyone who would truly look? The Apostle Paul wrote this next. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The idea here is that God has clearly revealed certain aspects and attributes of himself in creation. Two, most notably, that he is eternal in power and divine in nature. These two attributes reveal that God stands above humanity as one to whom we must submit our lives and conform our lives. But humanity desired and humanity desires something different. Instead of submitting to God, the God who exists, instead of conforming our lives to the God who exists, we would rather be our own gods. Whether that takes the form of searching for applause and praise directed our way as opposed to God's, whether that takes the form of disobedience to God's word as we suppress his commands, smothering them, stifling them, suppressing the truth of his word in favor of our sin, which is a practice oh so common in human history, all of it leads to the same end. Futile thinking, darkened hearts, and the height of the Bible's descriptions of the unsaved the becoming of a fool. Fool in this context is a pejorative term. It's an insulting term. The height of humanity in their suppression of God and their rejection of God, the height that they reach in Scripture is the level of fool. And so in his wrath, the Lord gives to the fool exactly what they want by giving them up to it. Three times we see this in Romans 1 play out. The first is in chapter 1, verse 24, where we read this. Therefore, this is all as a result of the suppression of God's truth. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You see, while the fool may for a time enjoy their sin, this is not a sign of God's permission, nor is it a sign of God's blessing, but it is a sign of God's wrath. Beware. 
And again in verse 26 of, chapter, of Romans chapter 1, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And again in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See that three times we see that phrase, God gave them up. The idea being, if this is what you want so bad, I'm going to give it to you and you will realize that this is not a blessing, but it is rather a curse. Increased sexual perversion, increased dishonoring of bodies, increased debasing of the mind, all of these are the result of God giving people exactly what they desire. And it is at the expense of what they truly need. What we all truly need is an abundant, joy-filled, peaceful life forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ because of our his grace dispensed upon us by faith in him. For the hypocrite in Matthew 6, the one whose primary aim is the applause and the admiration and the recognition of other people, that's what the Lord gives them. That is the totality of their reward. Human applause is a poor, cheap, third-rate substitute for the rewards of the Lord. So the question for you is, what are you seeking after? Do you hope to be applauded and recognized by other people for your righteous deeds? Is your life lived for the admiration of those around you, or are you dedicated to the pursuit of God's honor? Are you committed to the exaltation of the Lord by your life of obedience? The two options lie before you. If you want man's praise, then do your works so that others might see and give you praise. But know that you have received your reward. That's the height of your reward. It's the highest accolade you will ever attain. However, if you want more than that, if you want a greater reward, and listen to Christ as he continues in verse 6. She said, don't be like the hypocrite, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, just again for clarity's sake, this command to go into your room does not disqualify any and all public prayer. It doesn't disqualify any and all corporate prayer. It does not prohibit or forbid us from praying to or praising God within earshot of other people. It does not bar us from testifying to faith in God through praise and thanksgiving in prayer alongside of and in sight of and in the hearing of our fellow brothers and sisters. It is instead a call to ensure that the honor of God is our primary, even more, the honor of God is our singular goal. So if you are tempted to seek public praise in your spiritual acts, listen to Jesus. Go into your room and shut the door and pray. The room in question here that Jesus would have been referring to would have been the most private room in the houses of the day. The room that had no windows in it. The private room, the most private room, out of sight of any person. Go there and pray in secret. Puritans used to call this secret prayer, and one of my favorite authors, a man named Thomas Brooks, penned a very great work called The Secret Key to Heaven. The book is an exposition of the very texts that we are looking at this morning, and he concluded that secret prayer, that private prayer, is perhaps the only exercise that distinguishes the true believer from the hypocrite. Did you hear that? Private Secret prayer is perhaps the only exercise that distinguishes the true believer from the hypocrite. This is what Brooks said. It is the regular exercising of yourself in secret prayer that will distinguish you from the hypocrites who do all they, who do, all they do to be seen of men. Now what does that mean? Because it's a rather stunning contention, isn't it? But think about it. Everything else that we do in life, everything we do to grow spiritually, 
Every single thing reveals itself in some way. If you read scripture all the time, that will come out in your speech and people will know that you've been reading scripture. That's a good thing. If you read lots of spiritual books, this will saturate your conversation. People will take note of your growth in knowledge. When we give, people see us giving. We get tax receipts for the most part for our giving. The list can go on and on. All of those spiritual practices are valuable. But there is only one practice that is simply you and God alone. There is only one practice no one else sees. No one else applauds applauds you for. No one else is involved in. Secret prayer wins you no accolades or no applause before other people. Secret prayer does not impress anyone else in any way because nobody knows about it unless you find a way to put it into your conversation. Your dedication to secret private prayer indicates your dedication to the Lord and the Lord alone because He is the Lord and you love Him and He's the only one who sees. He's the only one who takes note of your secret prayer. That's what we see in verse 6, right? Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So you see that? The Lord is in secret, meaning the Lord is there with you when you are praying in your room with shut door. He is in the room with you. He is present with you in the secret. He sees in secret. He hears your address to Him. This is one of the great benefits secured for us by Christ the blessing and the privilege of addressing God and Him actually inclining His ear to hear us and He rewards us. Everything else that we do can be seen by other people. The only thing that distinguishes us from hypocrites is private prayer So then the question is, do you pray in secret? Don't nod your head. Do you pray in secret? Do you make and take the time to just be in prayer with the Lord and the Lord alone? It's very important. If you haven't been, then what what separates you from the hypocrite? Jesus continues in verse 7 saying when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think they will be heard for their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him so Jesus is a little is moving a little bit into the content of our prayers without the specific content these are just a couple of things to take note of when we pray when you are going to go into your room and pray you see there exists a fine and delicate balancing act for us as humans as we approach the Lord to address Him in prayer. Isn't there? We who believe and trust in Christ, if you read Scripture, are exhorted to approach Him boldly. We are exhorted to approach Him in full assurance of our forgiveness and our acceptance by God. And we are given examples of such brazen persistence in prayer as Paul, for example, prayed three times for the removal of the thorn in his flesh. And Jesus told a parable about a persistent widow who persevered tirelessly in prayer. And he capped off the story with this main point, Luke 18. Will not the Lord give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And Jesus himself, on the night when he was betrayed, prayed three times at least in the Garden of Gethsemane, that if it were at all possible for the cup of God's wrath to be poured out, uh, to be, to, for it to be done differently, may it be so, but yet not as I will, but as you will. Bold, persistent prayer to our Heavenly Father is a good thing. 
And scripture uses the term father because, as you know, it uses the term in the, in the best connotation, the best, the best meaning to the word. I know that some people don't have great relationships with their father, but when you see God revealed in scripture as a heavenly father, think of the greatest of fathers and then times that by infinity, all right? God is the greatest of fathers, the perfect father. And children have a sort, or a sort of access or a type of access to their fathers that other people don't, right? The same is true for those who believe in Christ. We are given an access to God that is not available to those who don't have God as father. And so we are given this privilege of bold, persistent prayer, of entering into the presence of God to address Him, of knowing that we belong to Him as members of His family, of knowing that we are forgiven by Him in Christ. However, we must also remember that when we pray, we are not to pray in any sort of flippant, unmeasured, or manipulative sort of way. And this is what Jesus is combating or in the first lines of verse 7. Look at it again. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. See, the pagan Gentiles of the day, serving their pagan gods, thought of prayer as some sort of magical incantation. If their prayers were calculated well enough, if they were shrewd enough, if they repeated the same thing long enough and loud enough or passionately enough, then the gods would be compelled to act on the petitioner's behalf. Gentile prayers were in many ways the setting of the person over and above the gods. They thought by their prayers that they could actually control and use the gods to their advantage by their repetitious prayers. See, the, the pagan Gentile prayer life was more of a mystical control system than anything else. And in some ways, we've actually seen this enter into the, the modern Christian space as well. A number of years back, a little book called The Prayer of Jabez Made the Rounds. Anybody remember that book? The Prayer of Jabez Made the Rounds. In the book, the author counseled Christians to repeat the prayer of Jabez, almost like it was some sort of magical incantation. Here is the prayer, 1 Chronicles 4.10. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Now, that's a wonderful prayer that Jabez prayed. A prayer that God granted to Jabez. But the idea that we can finagle the same response from God by repeating the same prayer over and over and over isn't prayer, it's witchcraft. Prayer is not some set of magic words that moves God to act on our behalf. Because as we read in verse 8, look at it, your father knows what you need before you ask him. You see that? No, prayer is... Uh, our recognition of dependence upon God. Prayer is our running to Him for comfort. Prayer is a signal and primary proof of our trust in His good and perfect will. And so we don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And on one hand, this will mean avoid the temptation to think that your flowery words or your verbosity or your eloquence carry any currency with the Lord. Listen, no matter how well we speak, it doesn't impress the Lord. What may sound impressive to another person does not impress the Lord. Instead, leave off all of the pretense and simply pray in trust to your Father who is in heaven. Now, while our flowery words won't impress the Lord, we must also, on the other hand, take care to measure our words carefully and well when we approach Him. The idea of not heaping up empty phrases is here, right? The idea is to speak words with, that don't have any thought behind them, to use too many useless and purposeless words, to babble on and on, to repeat things meaninglessly in prayer against much of the thought of modern day we must seriously consider and weigh every word that we pray why because of the dignity of the one to whom we address we are talking to god 
We are in God's presence when we pray. And thoughtless babble is heartless prayer. And heartless prayer is an offense to God. You see, sometimes we forget who it is that we approach in prayer, right? We approach Him who is high and lifted up. We approach Him who inhabits eternity. We approach Him whose name is holy. When we come to pray to the Lord, we are coming to Him who is a consuming fire. We come to Him who is the lion who roars and strikes terror in the heart. We come to Him whose presence shakes and melts mountains like wax. We come to Him before whom the entire host of heaven falls on their faces crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the God that we cannot at this time look upon and live. He is the mighty warrior dressed for battle. He is the God who sets up and deposes kings of the earth. He is the God who laughs from his throne at the rage of the nations who conspire against him. This is the God who appeared to Job in a whirlwind, causing Job to despise himself and shut his mouth. When we come to God in prayer, we are approaching the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the king overall transcendent all-knowing all-powerful and as we approach him in prayer as we call upon him in prayer we must always remember who he is and King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 2 gives us some good advice he said when be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When approaching the Lord in prayer, when you've shut the door and it's you and Him, measure your words carefully. In fact, it is better to sit silent in His presence than to heap up empty phrases, to heap up thoughtless words, to heap up heartless petitions. You see, this is difficult for us in our culture, right? Because we tend to fear silence. We want to fill every moment with some sort of noise. And we are all accustomed to the cultural practice of spouting our opinions on everything all of the time on every social media platform that we can find, even if we don't know what we're talking about. We spout off all the time, and then we bring that to our time with the Lord. It ought to be different when we approach God. Let your words be weighed and weighty. Let your words be meaningful, born out of a heart that praises Him and trusts Him. Let your words be thought out. Let your words be ordered. Let your words be few. As James wrote, My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. And as Solomon says, It is good to take care when uttering a word to or before the Lord. Why? As Solomon said, he is in heaven, you are on earth. Meaning, he is great, he is glorious, he is worthy of all praise, and we are people of the dust. And our words about him, to him, and before him ought to reflect the reality. He is in heaven, we are on earth. And see, there's going to need to be a a change in mind here, right? Because we've been fed a number of ideas about prayer in our day-to-day Christian life, which I wholeheartedly reject. Like, people say, prayer is just saying whatever you want to say to God. Where is that in Scripture? In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus point blank, how do we pray? Teach us to pray! Was Jesus' response... Just say whatever. No, it was the opposite. He said, don't heap up empty phrases. And then modeled for them a weighty and well-thought-out prayer that recognizes both the closeness of God as Father along with His unparalleled majesty. And we see it in the first line of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, the closeness. In heaven, the transcendence. Hallowed be your name, the praise. We've also been told that spontaneity equals spirituality. While in some cases, even in many cases, we can in the power of the Spirit weigh and measure our words before the Lord spontaneously, 
in many cases, spontaneity has led to flippant, casual style of prayer that is filled with empty words and heaped up phrases. For so many years in Christian history, the Christian could not conceive of not writing down their prayers before they prayed them. Because they recognize that God is in heaven and they are on earth. We are small in comparison to him. We are easily led into frivolity. We are lacking in the ability to sustain gravity. We, are, we tend towards flippancy. We tend towards the lowest common denominator. We are prone to surface level. We are prone to forgetting the weightiness of God. So we are to let our words be few. And the great reformer Martin Luther said this in the way that only Martin Luther can saying, keep your words brief and intense. God has no need of everlasting twaddle. And again, he said, remember your situation. God is such a great majesty in heaven, and you are a worm upon earth. You cannot speak about the works of God on the basis of your own judgment. Let God rather do the speaking. Do not dispute about the counsels of God and do not try to control things by your own counsels. It is God who can arrange things and perfect them for he himself is in heaven. And we express all of this in German by saying, don't use many words, but keep your mouth shut. You see... Whereas the pagan thinks they can repeat the same things over and over, thinking the gods will hear them because of their many words, we are called to recognize and to understand that our Father in heaven, verse 8, knows what we need before we ask him. Which leads to the question, if the Lord already knows, then why pray? If we aren't informing God of anything new, if we aren't striving to move God's hand as though he were reluctant or hesitant to dispense his goodwill, why pray? Again, another great reformer, John Calvin, explains it like this. We pray to seek him. We pray to exercise faith in him. We pray to meditate on his good promises and person. We pray to pour out our cares and our anxieties to him in trust and knowledge that he is our caring and attentive father. In other words, prayer builds our faith. God already knows all. He already knows what you need. He knows what I need. He knows it all before we even utter our first words of prayer. Prayer is not the communication of information to God. It's not some technique for getting what you want uh, from, out of God against his better judgment. No, prayer is for us the expression of trust, the expression of love for, the expression of dependence upon the God that we know and love as Father. So prayer does not instruct him. Prayer does not give him counsel. Our prayers do not correct him. Our prayers do not inform him. Our prayers do not cause God to change his sovereign plan. Our prayers do not cause God to change his ultimate will. No, we pray that his will be done, not ours. We'll see that in the Lord's Prayer when we get to it. However, in one of God's more wonderful revelations in Scripture, while His will isn't changed by our prayers, God does indeed use our prayers to work out His will as we pray. That's amazing. God has chosen to use our prayers to work out His good and perfect will, as we see in James 5.16, where the apostle says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer changes us. God understands you. He knows what you need. He's informed about everything you need. He is our loving and all-knowing Father who knows your needs and my needs better than we do. And he is a better judge of your needs and he's a better judge of my needs than I am. And prayer is the leaving of those needs in his hands, trusting in his goodwill 
and in his good plan. So, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the street corners and in the synagogues so that everyone will see them because they've received their reward. Whose reward do you want? The cheap applause of men or the Father who sees your prayer in secret who rewards you? Remember who it is that you enter into, remember whose presence it is you enter into when you pray. And if you need to, slow down. You don't need to get everything out in 30 seconds. Slow it down. Think about your words. Make sure that they are born out of a heart of trust and recognition of who God is. I guarantee you that your prayer life and your spiritual life will grow by leaps and bounds as we develop this practice. Father, we praise you and we thank you. You are wonderful. You are righteous. You are holy. You are our Father who is in heaven. We ask that you would ensure that our hearts are pointed towards you and that the reason and the purpose for everything that we do is your exaltation and your honor. We pray that as we engage in our uh, secret closet prayer, that your spirit would help us to weigh our words that your spirit would help us to recognize whose presence we are entering into and to help us balance well the recognition that you are our Father who loves us and we have a bold access to you based on what Christ has accomplished and at the same time you are in heaven and we are on earth. You are the God over all worthy of all praise. Help us grow in our times of prayer. Help us make and take time to petition you in prayer and to trust in you, to cast our anxieties upon you and to cast our burdens upon you because you care for us. We thank you for this privilege purchased for us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.